0: Hi, I'm Sienna. Hello, I'm Christina. And you're listening to Behind the Curtains podcast, a podcast brought to you by English Touring Theatre. Join us as we chat to
1: some amazing creatives and movers and shakers in the world of theatre off the stage.
0: From directors, to producers, to choreographers, production managers, writers, and dialect coaches, we're spotlighting the folks that are the backbone of the industry. We'll be reflecting on
1: life and work in a pandemic and thinking ahead to what the future might hold in these uncertain times. Our guests will also tell you their stories and share their career journeys, each unique to them.
0: In this episode, we are thrilled to be joined by artistic director and all-round badass, Natalie Ebu. Hey, Nat.
2: Hey. Thanks for having me.
0: Such a joy to have you. Before we dive into our conversation, let's give you your due praise. Let's let's do your full biog. So, Natalie was recently appointed the new Artistic Director and CEO of Northern Stage. Congrats, Natalie. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. They
0: they are super lucky to have you. Previously, she was the Artistic Director of Theatre for Huntsi. Earlier in her career, she was the Creative Producer for In Good Company, launching the Regional Artist Development Programme in the East Midlands for Derby Theatre, Embrace Arts Leicester and Creative Mansfield. Her many awards include Diwa Arts Award for Exceptional Artists Under 30, Time Warner Ignite Two Ideas Tap Innovators Awards and the Lillian Bayliss Award for Theatrical Excellence, and excellent she most certainly is. So we are thrilled to have you, Nat.
2: You've done your research. Wow, wow, wow. Here I am, <laughs> blushing.
0: So, Nat, the first question is just, how are you doing? This is what we're trying to ask everybody. How are you today?
2: Mm. And you know what? Every time someone asks me this, I try to stop myself from just going, I'm good, I'm okay, you know, and like really sort of mindfully think about how I'm doing. I mean, today I am fine and uh, I just trying to be kind with myself and with others because it changes, doesn't it? Every day is, you know, I wake up and I'm like, today I'm going to give up smoking. Today I'm going to give up wine in the evening. And then it gets to maybe like, you know, quarter to two and I'm like, yeah today's not the one uh, but today is is okay and all the better for getting to spend some time with you too yes.
0: oh that's amazing now we've uh, touched base on how you are let's start from the very beginning now um so basic question is how did you even start your career in the arts and what motivated you to go down this path
2: yeah good question so if my mum was on this podcast she would say that she took me to the theater when I was when I was a child. I have no memory of that. Uh, no shade, sorry Edinburgh. What I remember is one being a really passionate dancer. So I used to do Pali, tap, disco, Latin, and jazz. And I think my first thing I wanted to be was a was a dancer, but this nigerian body was not made for ballet and uh, at the time ballet was uh you know was the foundation of all dance practice so that wasn't going to happen for me and then i remember youth theater and i remember being going to a youth theater in ox gangs and my mum taking me there and it was a musical um and we've got this picture of me dressed up i think it was like a christmas caper um or the the blue christmas caper and then i think i wanted to be an actor and I, i remember sort of hitting like, my teenage years and just becoming incredibly sort of uh, self-conscious and realising that I, you know, wasn't very good, probably. And I don't know how it happened, but the next thing I remember wanting to be was a director, and more specifically an artistic director, which is quite a sophisticated thought, I think, for a kind of teenager. I was always sort of reading, I was always writing stories, and I um, had a relationship with my local theatre, which was the Traverse, very lucky to have it as my local theatre, and doing a young writers programme, and feeling that that building was my own, because I was there when no one else was there, you know, like, and I got to go backstage and be in the theatres, and I must have had an encounter with Philip Howard, who was the artistic director at the time and who was a, a white, middle to upper class man, you know, was not not me. <laughs> There's no way that I thought, oh, if he can do it, I can do it. But I did. Um, there must have been something about the way that he held space, something about, I don't know, the way he was, his office, the way he dressed. But I, I remember thinking I wanted to be an artistic director, particularly when times get hard. I try to sort of question that 16, 17 year old, like she didn't know what she was talking about, but I think she really did, you know, cause I went on to study theatre with arts management at university, which is exactly what an artistic director does. It is the balance of the kind of business and arts management, marketing, fundraising, and the practice, um, and, and here I am, <laughs> you know. So she clearly did know what she was talking about or what she was feeling. Um, and I think, listen, I'm a black Scottish woman, from a mixed heritage family so no one looks like me in my family i'm the darkest of everyone you know i was the only black kid in my school i was the only black family on my street like being the only one is my normal and it i think it it is feels unusual that someone who is you know working class queer a woman from a single parent family black would in the 90s imagine herself in in a industry that didn't look like her but I think that was no like it didn't matter because nothing looked like me (laughs) so there was you know I was used to being the only one and I I really think that that sort of um naivety was actually really useful for me because I don't get phased by being not represented which is my I guess my special power for just like breaking through those ceilings and into those rooms and around those tables you know
0: Mm. that is i love that you call it a special power because it is i think it's so remarkable actually that at 17 you had this clarity of thought um a lot of our guests that we've spoken to really have said that you know they kind of worked it out a little bit later in their career or they at went at out sort of six, 16, 17 kind of were experimenting but you have this clarity of thought which i find just really remarkable knowing that you didn't really actually have examples of those who look like you in that space and i think saying that you want to be an artistic director very specifically i find quite astonishing just in general i just think a lot of people they might be want to be a director or, or things and then being an artistic director is something that kind of just happens as they go along in their career and and go up the the ranks so i think i would like to Just know a bit more though, about how you, I guess knew, or tell us a bit more about the steps that you you took, knowing that you talked about sort of theatre management, you knew you had to do that, but what would be the steps then, um, for someone to take in their career to kind of reach um, that Mm. artistic director level now?
2: For me, it was university, because I didn't know that you could study directing in a drama school. And I think if I had known that, I might have made different choices, but I, w- I went to, to Montfort and Leicester because I was desperate to get away from Scotland, desperate to find people who looked like me, wanted to come to London, didn't know what the options were. I thought Leicester's in England, it'll be like London. It wasn't, but you know, you live and you learn. Um, And did theatre with arts management. The degree was quite academic, Which was fine because I am, but it didn't prepare me to be a working director. And I think I was very clear that as an artistic director that I would need to be both have a practice, but also the arts management. I needed both of those things. Um, and, And so because I felt unprepared, it meant I was like super... Proactive about my professional development, so I applied for a residency in the East Midlands that was the first and last year of it called first stage, which was a positive action residential uh, residency scheme for five people of color artists of color in to be a resident in five um venues and I went to new perspectives in the east midlands in in Mansfield at the time and then in Nottingham and assisted on lots of shows and um, develop their, their youth theatre offer and had a, a, at that time I was 20, had a crisis of confidence because I was in rooms with older white men who didn't listen to me and wouldn't, I, I felt that this was too hard and so I decided that I was return to Scotland and I'd, I'd start to develop my arts management skills so I went to the Traverse, worked in marketing press, great experience in a building, um, great experience building a network uh learning about all different types of shows learning how to sell all different types of shows but sort of a year and a half into that um i was like i need to tell stories um that you know i have to I have to be in the room um and so i left thinking it would be as easy as that as, as reclaiming that decision and of course it wasn't um so i did a lot of freelancing as a marketing and press officer and then because i'd worked at the traverse i was able to um create some opportunities for myself to assist so i assisted at the sits um i shadowed and sat in rehearsal rooms um i started a company because i was sick of waiting for opportunities to um to christen me as a director so just as i was in love with that someone had said to me oh you should apply for the RTYDS. it's a very competitive scheme uh, and i didn't know what it was so i applied again that naivety applied um and uh was felt like i didn't really want it or need it really and and i think that worked in my in my favor because i got it and and i, I got it first time and i got the royal court so i then moved to london very begrudgingly because i also having wanted to be a londoner so desperately had matured enough to be like i hate the way that london thinks it's the center of the world like i hate this idea that you your careers are made in london that you're not uh, like you're not good if you're not in london so let me just go do my year and then i'll come back to scotland fast forward 12 years later I've only just moved out of London it had me it had me um in its grips um so my year at the royal court again and the thing about rtyds is it's about developing leaders and um, not just directors and of course the skills are similar but there is also sort of a strategic and um management and leadership element of, of the ta- of the role um and I had a wonderful year at the Royal Court assisting on lots of shows. I really felt that I learnt best practice there. I really felt that um that it is where I f- I found my own practice and my own values about what was important. And so I left London for seven months, lol, um to start up in good company for Derby Theatre. And um just as I was sort of getting in my stride there, The the job at Teatro Fuhunzi came up. It was an artistic director role. Um, I had been invited previously and um, at that point had felt a very complex relationship with my blackness. Didn't feel that I was black enough. Never felt, you know, I wasn't Scottish enough. I wasn't black enough. I wasn't working class enough. Like there was so many ways in which I felt the singular narrative had had erased the nuance and the spectrum, and I just couldn't see myself within the definition. So I was like, you know, I barely know I'm black. It's probably not right for me to um to run a a, a proudly black theatre company. But in 2014, age 30 different story babes like i had um i had grown into my blackness i had acknowledged and appreciated and celebrated that just because i got a scottish accent and i'd never been to africa doesn't make me any less black because i'm black you know that i was a story of and and not a story of but yeah that I was African and Scottish not African but grew up in Scotland and and so I was like cool let me let me throw my hat into the ring and and I got that job Uh, and and what's interesting is I got that job one because it really needed a very good producer and someone who's really well networked which is what all those steps and all those jobs and had had generated for me and two because diaspora had developed and perhaps the stories hadn't and so that conflict that I had worked through that complexity that um intersectionality was exactly where that company needed to be four years into that I had started to get itchy feet about a building you know when it's right it's right I didn't change my interview process or interview offer I didn't change who I was the people changed and um it happened to be that there was a kind of union of ideas at Northern Stage. And so here I am. Um, that was a very long, not what like, journey. not Potter's not <laughs> history. It's It was really, it was a biopic, wasn't it? I love yeah,
0: that uh, step-by-step
1: guide. <laughs> so definitely, I mean, I kind of see it as well as that, because it's, it's amazing that you had this idea from the beginning that you wanted to be an artistic director. And I think for me, what I really appreciate is your confidence in that because whenever I used to go to the theatres or work behind stage you know because I didn't see anyone that represented me I kind of didn't have the confidence to see beyond what I thought I could be which was an assistant or something that was more um not as senior so it's just it's very inspirational to know that you have that confidence because having that confidence allows you then to take the path that you've taken and I can kind of see it's all it's like a jigsaw puzzle everything you've done slots together even though there are times where things might seem a bit different they all somehow slot together to create the whole picture and you've it's like it's it's always a blessing I think when you know your purpose
2: Mm, yeah
1: um and it's really it's so nice to see that you know you you're fulfilling your dream and your purpose of you know when you were 17 It's, it's amazing it's really cool
0: Now let's talk about decentering London, especially as you've started to touch on the idea of London not being the centre of the world, even though some of us in the room, <coughs> Chrissy, um thinks <laughs> that it is. <laughs> and we know that you're very well travelled, you've travelled across the continent of Africa, for example, um, and we'd just like to know a bit more about how these experiences have informed your practice and thinking about the kind of different geographies across the UK and internationally, what have you been able to kind of apply and learn from?
2: Yeah, so... I made a purposeful decision to um, keep an eye on my international ambition because I felt that as artists of colour, like, so much of our energy is about um, trying to tell stories at home, right? And while other people who are welcome to tell stories at home are able to grow epic international careers and so i just i really wanted to sort of force myself to think beyond the boundary of of england and the uk so my first um international flurry or yeah sort of like adventure sort of professionally was at was in 2011 i did a residency at new york theater workshop um who are renowned for their kind of musicals it's where slave play started you know tbc um and where or tbd uh where um uh, rent started and um and that was really just about like constantly engaging with my practice like why i do what i do and are there other ways and better ways to do it um, and then um i at theater for hunzi was really interested in the concept of afropolitans as a as a it's a story that we weren't telling about ourselves that so much of the the stories about black people for so long have been about either being foreign or arriving or being um of deficit financial morally etc and here was this i'd found a, a blog or a, an article by Ty selassie had talked about this uh this community of Afropolitans. So these were um, African born, uh, often educated in Britain, often went to university at an Ivy League and then ended up working in Europe, who straddled multiple continents simultaneously, who were the elite essentially, the upper class. And I was like, where is this story on TV? on radio, on our stages, right? And just was, had always been sort of motivated to find the story that subverts the singular one. Um, and so as a result of that, had the absolute pleasure of um, going to Oslo, Johannesburg, Baltimore, LA, New York to speak to, I think it was 35 African slash African diaspora because the question is, are you diaspora? when you're in Africa. <laughs> like, you know, I would identify myself as African diaspora. And when I was in Johannesburg, I was like, well, here, I'm probably just African, <laughs> you know, cause I am, I'm in the continent. Um, and um, talk to them about home and about place and about where's local and what it means to be known and to know. Um, and then in 2018, maybe 19, went to Nigeria, which is my father land, um, for the first time since I was a baby, uh, with a African, sorry, a Nigerian American who's based in New York, and we spent two weeks de- continuing to develop this idea. So, so the travel sometimes has been about practice and understanding how other geographies work, but mostly it's been about engaging with people and place and stories. Um, yeah, and it's I just think you know that we are. A people of multiplicity and texture and depth and just constantly wanting to like live and and um and tell stories that are that are rich and and that fully encapsulate like who we are and that has to take you beyond Britain you know it simply does um and then just I think generally I am um, you know have feel. Uh, a, a particular connection to the to the north because I'm from Scotland and there's a kind of similarity of spirit and approach and politic and um, yeah, like Newcastle in the northeast is a is a glorious place to be setting up home at the moment. And um, no offense, Londoners, but it London is hard. London is hard. It does not welcome you, and you got to work for it.
1: It's definitely tough. That's a problem with London. I can I totally understand when people say that London isn't always the best place especially if you're not from London because it's hard to kind of make a community or to make friends with people you know whereas if I was to go anywhere the Caribbean or anywhere else like you can walk on the streets and people are saying hello good morning and you can automatically kind of like stir up a conversation but in London it's it's hard it's yeah and I get that
2: but I think it's survival isn't it it's like Mm. that London requires you to shut down and be internal just to get through the day because there's so much madness on the streets and in life and and so that makes those moments of connection really difficult in a way that perhaps the pace of life and yeah the kind of structure of other cities are slightly more enabling facilitate slightly more connection you know so for for example when i came for my think it was my third interview for northern stage and i had my dog obi puff puff Ibu, the the whitest black dog the whitest nigerian dog um and i needed to go to tesco to get some breakfast but i couldn't leave him on his own because he's a puppy and i said can i take can i carry the dog in and the tesco sales assistant went in spoke to the manager and the manager came out and looked after Obi-Puff-Puff-Ebe whilst I went and got my croissant.
0: Please, no way, never
2: happened to me. Kidding me? me? Never. Isn't that amazing?
0: It's an important point though, and although we'll move on now, but um, just to kind of close and say. <laughs> That, you know, we've had other guests as well, like who are, you know, based in, in the North, for example, or the Midlands. So in, in one of our early episodes, we had um, Maddie and she's based in Birmingham and she's originally from London. We were talking about even just the fact that it's a cheaper life in these cities um, comparatively to London. And so you don't have to work three jobs. That already makes your pace of life a little bit different. And the fact you can engage a bit more and be present.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah, you've got to go where it feeds you right and for some people London feeds their art, feeds, feeds who they are, that pace is attractive and and nourishes them but don't, uh, basically what I'm saying is don't be suffering where you need to be unnecessarily because London mm-hmm. isn't the centre of the world but and also as we've learned everything is accessible anyway I mean, let's move on. On <laughs> that um, <laughs> um, note
1: Obviously, we know that that you have no typical day. Every day is going to be completely different. But can you just tell us what the key responsibilities of of an artistic director is and... Are there any key differences between being an artistic director in the building versus non-building specific theatre organisations?
2: Oh gosh, Chrissy, can I answer this in a year's time? Because uh, <laughs> right, you know, right now, who knows? So I am officially a week and a half into this role, officially, but I was doing some right. some part-time freelance work for them in between the transition. Um, and and the wild thing about this moment is. You know, everyone's working from home. I've been going into the office. The So much of the job is reactive to um, government announcements on a literally daily basis. Um, so I just, I simply do not know anymore what the shape of this job is. I did in February when this process started, but now it is different. And I'm really just, I think the key thing is that I am saying to our team of 36, tell me what you need from me today. And it's like, how are you today? It's the same principle, which is, I see my job as being about facilitating them to do their jobs. And at the moment, I have to take on a day-to-day basis about what people need from me. I think what I can compare is... um, that you know seven months of my final year at theater for were spent in a pandemic and I, it was interesting because having wanted so desperately to upscale and to go into a building it was probably the best time to be small scale it was the best time to be a touring organization because we didn't rely on uh box office ticket sales people coming over a threshold which meant the pressure was really off for us and in that immediate term i think the pressure will be absolutely beyond for touring companies and non-building based organisations in the next phase but at that time actually my work and my, my job felt doable for the first time in six years but quite a lot of that was about sort of responding to venues needs that the power from, a two, from our perspective, was still held by buildings. And I was in the process of beginning some work with for Fahunzi, which was about, it's all very well, the Arts Council, um, uh, acknowledging the importance of multiple voices, multiple organisations. But when you're only funded partially, and you still need to rely on venues saying, yes, there is no autonomy, actually. We're still, you know, we're at the table, but our hands are tied. And what would a structure look like for that organization that allowed it to be autonomous where it didn't rely on anyone gatekeeping and saying yes to an idea so i came from that site, which was about you know not how do we get rid of buildings but how do we as a black theater company become less reliant on what is still predominantly white gatekeepers facilitating our access to audiences Um, And then, you know, midway through that, suddenly I'm on the other side of the table, right, (laughs) which is a responsibility to a place, to a sector, to be that broker between independents, artists, uh, writers, playwrights, companies and audiences and communities And, and how having been on all sides of the table, a freelancer, running a touring organisation, you know, working in talent development, I can be the best artistic director for all of the people at that table. And so I don't know what the answer is, but I'm telling you, I'm thinking about it a lot. Um, Yeah, come back to me in a year. Let's do a follow-up.
1: We are living in strange times at the moment when, where we have this pandemic crisis which is causing so much uncertainty globally um so Natalie I guess my next kind of question is what has been well what has this time meant for those who are like you positions of leadership
2: I mean listen I like I say I've been on the other side of the table so again I'm working it out but it, but it's a responsibility a responsibility to use public money well to get our buildings open safely um, to provide space for people to connect where they're you know where the, the pandemic is is a raising opportunities for us to connect and care and um, and know each other so there's a kind of responsibility to to put those those things in place for our communities and for our society but then also to be responsible with public money and as we've seen from the lockdown too, you know, there've been lots of theatres who were in production, who were capitalising shows, who have had to close those shows down. And so it's it's really a game of risk, right? It's about when do you take the step forward? When do you play it cautious? Um, you know, using the information that you have in that moment to plan and then having these backups and scenarios. So it's, it is an unsettling time. It is a time where... I'm just constantly having to have options in the air. It's a time of lots of conversations and and at the moment, unfortunately, very little commitment. Because you're like, Well, if this happens, we can do this, if that happens, we can do that. But we've got to be fair and, you know, not take things too far so that we can't pull back. So it's it feels like a time of inaction and sort of like treading water and holding your breath. But that is what it is for me.
0: Yeah. Love that answer. It's really, it's really tricky to be able to give clear answers in such uncertain times. So we, we definitely yes. get that. And I think, I think it's really important to be humble and say, I don't have all the answers. We don't know, we're working it out. Um. So moving slightly away from the pandemic, but thinking, you know, adjacent to it and thinking about opportunities. So actually, Nat, and I know you're someone who thinks about digital a lot. So even before this pandemic moment, we saw that there was probably a need for art and artists to be thinking about how to make work in an ever increasingly digital world. And now that's just been ramped up by the fact that we can't actually do live theatre or, or live arts in the way that we used to do. And I just, I just wanted to find out if you have any thoughts on kind of the opportunities, um, you know, once everyone kind of finds their feet or whatever, yeah, the kind of opportunities that this new way of working might actually present to artists and um, leaders in the arts, for example. Um, one thing I found is that although it's been a very challenging time, I have been able to, with my different elements of my work, actually reach people who I wouldn't have been able to reach before because of geography. You know, you'd have mm. to get on a plane to reach them or something like this. And now <laughs> you hop on Zoom, although other platforms are available. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so just, yeah, what are your thoughts on kind of the digital nature? It feels a bit like do or die in this moment, but mm. what? how can we harness this in the future, even beyond the pandemic, just to carry on with the, the yeah. positive aspects of
2: digital? So for me, digital has always been about audience. It's about, you know, our buildings, our problematic spaces for lots of people and if and and certainly a Teatro Fahunzi without a digital strategy then you're reliant again on on the, the building being the brokerage to the audience and so autonomy sits in digital for us it also you know the the audience that I was excited about at Teatro Fahunzi were kind of you know black second generation culturally hungry political um, engaged audience and they were on the digital space so let me go to them instead of expecting them to come to us so for me it's a it's about the opportunities to reach audiences i am cautious about um you know, I wrote an article in the stage at the beginning of pandemic, which was like, can we all just chill with like generating more digital content because we're, you know, I've got enough to catch up on on Netflix. Like, do we need, <laughs> do we need more digital, you know, and actually, do we need to just be using our resources to think carefully about the role our role when the world opens up again but that was when we thought it was going to be two months long now you know even i am pivoting and saying okay it's time to think about digital fine (laughs) i've rest i mean i wish i'd been resting for seven months but um so I, i i'm also sort of cautious about digital because i think digital has its own like i don't know there's something about Listen, I'm I'm thinking as I talk here, so apologies, but I've always felt a bit embarrassed by the digital content that theaters make.
0: Yes. it's like <laughs> sometimes.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's like sort of like theater does digital. Is it, it feels like it just always sort of misses the step and it's behind the curve, and I think. We should be using this opportunity to engage a diverse and representative workforce that live in this space, that are innovating in this space, rather than feeling like we've got to deliver it in-house, you know? Like, it's funny when we look at trailers, and listen, I have been guilty of it also, where um, they basically look like a theatre like project on on screen and actually when you think about the things that have like major hits on YouTube like it's often just someone with an audience talking passionately on their phone you know it isn't this kind of high tech um high quality uh simulation of a theater experience and i i just wish that we would stop trying to force the way that we work into new spaces but actually embrace what the space what works for the space what the space needs and what that audience want and you know and be slightly more flexible so I think I'm all for sort of shaking up like if we're in it for stories we can tell stories in different ways in different forms and let's not just let's not hold on to one way of telling stories if that makes sense
0: absolutely it's like um the live you know i always say film digital all of this are not an exact replacement for the work of theater it's still a live art form right although you can do things digitally we have to remember that you don't just use the exact same formula you have to adapt because it's a new space so we totally get that yeah.
1: Natalie, I was going to ask you, I know we mentioned this before about your unsung hero. So we've given every single guest a challenge or a task to come up or tell us what their, who their unsung hero is, just so we can give them their props where it's due and just really recognise some inspirational people that have inspired you. So please let us know who your unsung heroes are.
2: So I would like to start with Nasim Khan, who wrote the very first diversity report all the way back to 1976, which was before I was born. And it was called The Art Britain Ignored. And I'm often citing that when people ask me to talk about diversity and I say, listen, guys, I'm bored. Like, this is this conversation has been going on since before I was born and I am not a teenager, do you know what I mean? Like, this is decades. And you guys have let me down, if you are still asking the new generation to come and fix it for you so I mad props to Nassim for paving the way for saying what had to be said and I'm I'm disappointed that we've let them down and we've let me down (laughs) like come on can we just like fix up and look sharp and get cracking you know I'm just I'm so bored of the conversation about diversity and also how basic it is, you know. Anyway, so and then on the other side, Ola Animashon. Sorry if I massacred massacred your name, Ola. Um, who was the very first black person I worked with in London, and you know I you know my my sort of um naivety of London was like, oh, it's full of people like me. And then I went to the Royal Court on this residency in two thousand and eight. it was just me and ola (laughs) and so actually you know there are places that are still that still look like scotland um and he is just like a legend a snazzy dresser as we were saying sienna Um, flamboyant dresser yes brings the colors brings the patterns is an absolute um champion for writers and makers Um, has recently been appointed, I think, an associate at the National. Like, about time, you know, Ola is just a fabulous person, and um, I really needed him when I started at the Royal Court. I needed to see someone else who looked like me, and he was that person for me.
0: Love that. Thank you, Nat. So, we are shouting out Naseem Khan and, of course, Ola and So, folks, go and find out more about um, those people, and do your homework do your Googles. (laughs) Okay so we're already coming towards the end of our conversation now but we've got a few more things to ask you Nat. What kind of advice would you have for anybody who's typically excluded from the arts but keen to enter the space and maybe you have some advice even for our peers who are currently in in the space now but are worried and and dispirited just kind of any thoughts or advice you have for others in this moment.
2: Oh what a question um get in touch you know, we need company in this. um. So I think don't be afraid to reach out to people who are alongside you or above you, if we're talking hierarchically, you know. um. I would say, like, just really think about what you're in it for. Like, really just get to know yourself in that way. Is it about you being in the room? Is it about the story? Like, just to really understand that purpose that we were talking about, Chrissy? because I think when you feel really connected to that, you can trust your instincts and your gut about the choices that you make. Um, I would say it's a marathon, not a sprint, which has been said to me so often. But also, don't be afraid to be ambitious. Don't be afraid to name what you want, you know. Like, at 17, I was going, I want to be the artistic director of this building. Um, Now, that didn't happen, but I'm, you know, the artistic director of a bigger building. Like, yo, like, I needed to... I needed to... I needed to set the intention, you know? um, It's lonely. And, you know, I'll start where I... I'll end where I started, which is that find community find reach out um don't feel that you're alone um yeah
0: love that you often say as well I know you often say one of the reasons why you entered the arts is for that building of community and I don't even know how long I've known you for quite some time now I don't even know we go way back um in and out and I just remember our conversations about digital and community over the years when you were at theatre so Mm -hmm. you are consistent you are consistent (laughs) with your messages (laughs) Natty, I was gonna ask you, how do you keep yourself
1: motivated, especially now? And um, how have you kept your mind healthy? Because you mm. like are f- you're really like you've got a really nice like spirit about you. So I mean, from where I am sitting, it seems like you've you you know you keep your your mind, your head is basically screwed on nicely, and oh, just that. Do, have- <laughs> do
2: you have any tips? Oh yeah, I have I have all the tips. Which is one, it isn't easy and I have had some dark, dark times. You know, I um, my resilience has struggled. Um, and yeah, so I would say, um, you're not your job. So this this job, the jobs we do in the creative industries are our whole lives, and that's what makes us brilliant at them. But it means that when the job gets hard, your whole life feels hard, your whole self feels challenged. So reminding yourself that you're a cheese string I always bring this cheese string al- analogy to the <laughs> table, which is like, what else are you? So you're a sister, you're a partner, you're a friend, you're a tap dancer. Like, what are all the bits of you? And just really nurturing and nourishing all of you so that, you know, if your job is 100%, the job is hard, everything feels shit. If your job is important, but is only 30 percent because you're also other things then when the job is hard you you seek you know um affirmation from all the other things that you are so i think finding finding out who you are beyond the job and all of those things will make you better at your job therapy absolutely and like factor it into your training budgets if you're on a salary factor it into your project grants if you're applying for arts council money like the work we do is hard it certainly as a black leader where my role is often to advocate for black humanity the toll of that i cannot tell you that yes i it it is not I, it is not marching yes it is not saving black bodies from police brutality but it is my own activism and i'm often pulling from my own personal experience to do the advocacy and that costs emotionally so we've got to pay to help us with that um i would say engaging with popular culture like loving the silly stuff so over the pandemic i have been hooked on the uh, Real Housewives franchise. Um, <laughs> Atlanta I, is my uh, city. Atlanta uh, that uh, franchise. Yeah. Messy as hell. Did, I only did two of Atlanta, but I did eleven seasons of Beverly Hills and eleven seasons of New York. I tell you, there's just something about white women bullying themselves that just feels like not. <laughs> it's, it's, crazy. It's, not. it's crazy. It is crazy. Um, but like, allow yourself the the silliness. Allow yourself those um those dirty what you call them. Dirty, guilty pleasures guilty pleasures yeah not dirty pleasures dirty oh, pleasures geez.
0: that's a different podcast that's exactly. a different podcast it is
2: um what else would i say i think that's and just be kind to yourself that um and and look after your body like the thing that really changed for me which is not great at the moment was that when i started to um care about my body about health and fitness so i used to walk between all meetings which meant i couldn't do 10 meetings a day because of the walk in between so suddenly it became four meetings a day which is probably the limit anyway or i couldn't start till 10 30 because i wanted to go to the gym at the moment that's actually a really healthy practice and as a leader prioritizing my own mental health and well-being meant one modelling it for other people but also meant that I cared about other people getting what they needed to do the job best um so like put yourself first basically
0: love that those are all really important um powerful tips and I'm just really shouting you out for talking about therapy the need for that and the fact that you can actually budget that into your projects um and that's something I'm wanting to do moving forward because it's definitely something I've done in the past especially when I've done work around like police brutality and stuff like that and haven't taken that kind of care of of my of myself basically and this is a powerful segue into one of our final questions for you so nat you are talk, you have mentioned kind of um the way that you do your activism and i think it's important to note that everyone's space everyone's space that they take up is important in this we need everybody doing their bit right not everyone can march or should march not everybody can fight specifically against police brutality but they can um represent meaningfully um the lives of black people that counter the trauma right that's that is important as well and i guess i wanted just to think about briefly you know we all saw the instagram black boxes and we saw organizations making these commitments um that in some cases or many cases were actually short-lived but you know with this all in mind this moment of great change that um 2020 has been and actually years before what are your hopes for the future of theater and creative industries especially when it comes to black narratives and black artists in this space now What are your hopes
2: my hopes are that we um that diversity representation and inclusion becomes excellence that it isn't perceived as a thing that you do on top of your business but that it is your business both artistically to achieve excellence but also from a business like, good business point of view. I want as many people to see the work that we make as possible. That is only... I'm only going to achieve that if everyone is welcome in my building, if everyone gets something from the art that we're making. Um, So I would say that it is as straightforward and as simple as that. And I guess the question is, what is it going to take for our buildings in the first instance because you know unfortunately the way the sector is built they are still the gatekeeper so often but then our organizations to see yeah diverse inclusion and representation as being excellence and anything that is not as beloved below par
0: really powerful okay so Natalie what is next for you you're always really busy we know that you've just um we meet you as you enter a new job and I know you're like ah um, but yeah. you're always up to something. So what will you be focusing on? I know one big thing is obviously being in that space of leadership and helping us through this this moment in the sector. Mm. But, you know, what's coming up?
2: Yeah, so getting to know my team. So despite the fact we're all working from home, I'm doing these one-to-ones and having lunch with people, which is delightful. Yeah. So getting to know my team and um, thinking about what the world needs. From us as we reopen, try to reopen in February, and and then ahead of that, I think one of my key sort of ambitions and objectives is to. Um, I feel that so often theatre is behind. It's one step behind the rest of the world, and at its best, it's managing to mirror where the world is at. But I want us to get ahead. I want us to be forecasting, trend setting, like preparing society for the world they're about to enter and so what does it take to get us ahead of the game um so thinking about how to do that for my organization so it is about yeah what does february to june look like but then it's also about what does twenty two twenty three look like um i'm really thinking a lot about welcome and what welcome looks like what radical welcome looks like um so that is yeah
0: Radical welcome. See, I've learned something new from every guest. So radical welcome. Basically you just
2: attach radical to any word that I'm into. And
0: it. all of a sudden it's a new thing. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Love that. Radical welcome. As a side note, do you know what I've noted in every <laughs> Christina? My catchphrase of the season has been love that. Love that, that has been my favourite I've noticed phrase. that as well. <laughs> I'm starting to say on everything, so I'm like, yeah, love that. I'm like, Where, who am I? Natalie, oh, you've just been amazing it, to speak to.
1: Thanks, thanks for, for having me. No, you
0: know, it's been brilliant.
1: Natalie, I was gonna ask you, could you let us know what your social platforms are so people can find you, if you have social platforms?
2: Oh I, oh, I do, I do. The problem why I'm holding my head is because when I put the handles together, I did not think about making it easy. I didn't I mean I hope that if you just go, if you just Twitter Google Twitter search Natalie Mona Eboo I'll come up but it is N M H I B U is here for Twitter shoots here for Instagram I don't do Facebook I don't do LinkedIn is that them all so it's just Twitter and Instagram yeah, that's it. And yeah. it makes perfect yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: sense. Instagram, you shoot here. We see you. D- yeah. You mm-hmm. know? Oh my gosh, what a special conversation. And can you believe it? We have reached the end of our first season. I think we just need a little whoop, whoop. That is six episodes, 11 guests, six opportunities to laugh and lament with us, several shout outs and a lot of wisdom from our guests. Thank you to all who have joined us this first season, namely Corey, Zodwa, Toby, Maddie, Shelley, ingrid alicia tida hazel allison who is our amazing technical producer um and of course our final guest the brilliant natalie Ebu. one more time for natalie woo, woo, woo. Thank
2: you.
0: and i know this is like an oxus um, an oscar speech rather but we've got to thank kemi Olayede as well who's our talented artist um who created our vibrant show image we also need to thank justine luaba who composed our banging show show tune it is a bop like Christina, you know how much I love our show Listen, too.
1: I just want to highlight something. When Sienna first heard the song, she sent me she sent me a couple of video notes because she wanted me to love it. Like, I did love it, but she wanted me to love it as much as she did. So she sent me one with her dancing to it, and then she sent me another one with her rapping to it, and I was like, all right, you know what? Even if I, at this
0: point, it
1: doesn't matter. You can't you take love it away me, from so let's
0: me. Just, let's, just, let's just have this. So it is a bop, it is a vibe, and you can rap to it as well. When the clubs are open, we can dance to it there as well. <laughs> And of course, we need to just say thank you to ETT for helping us make this happen. Yes,
1: and if you have missed any previous episodes, Now is the time to go and binge like crazy. So you can catch up every, on every episode of Behind the Curtains podcast now on Spotify, iTunes, Acast and anywhere else you enjoy listening to your podcasts.
0: And don't forget to like, subscribe and share. Spread the love. Follow ETT on at ETT Tweet on Twitter and at English Touring Theatre on Instagram and follow Christina and I. I'm Sienna. So if you thought Natalie's handle was complicated, mine is S-I-A-N-A-A-R-G-H everywhere. And catch Christina, at Chrissy Nicole. Friends, it has been a pleasure. Until next time.